Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, and this I keep on doing. For now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin." Thanks, Luke. Good morning, everyone. Repeat after me. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. 
Let's say it again. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. Who here has ever been on a car trip and a vacation you've gone in the car? You know, when you take kids, particularly in the car, it's a pretty painful experience. And I remember you've just got one block away from home, you're going on a really long journey, and you hear that, that sentence, don't you, in the back of the car. What is it? Are we there yet? That's what we hear, isn't it, when we're going on a long trip. In 1990, we did a vacation to the Gold Coast by car. My parents decided that we would drive, and so we started in Cheltenham. And when you drive into Queensland, that's going to make for a very long trip, and there's every chance of World War III happening in the back seat. And so we set off on this journey, and if you're going to go on a journey that long, you've got to find things to keep your kids entertained all the way to Queensland. Now these days it's a lot easier, isn't it? We've got iPods and iPads and iPhones, and people say they're for communication, but we know that they're God's little gift to shut our kids up when we need some peace and quiet. And so it's kind of easy to keep your kids entertained uh, these days. But back in our, my day, when I was young, um, we didn't have that kind of technology. In fact, the only eye technology we had was a thing called iSpy. You know, who remembers that game? You know, playing that in the back seat. Uh, I spy with my little eye, something beginning with B. And then you hear people in the back seat say, boring, and they pretty much nailed it. And so I spy was a technology we had, but the problem is that only got us to Mentone. And so we had to think of other things to keep us going all the way to Queensland. And so going on some pretty big highways, the human Pacific highways, the game my parents came up with was to count how many dead kangaroos we saw on the side of the road. That's a pretty morbid way of having fun, but that's how the Williams family rolls. We're a little bit sickos. But it kept us occupied on a really long journey, and I remember that we counted 101 dead kangaroos. That's kind of sad, isn't it? That so many kangaroos are hit by cars, um, but it was kind of exciting to play that game. And so what kept us going all the way to Queensland? Well, it wasn't the dead kangaroos, it was the hope of the destination. And every kangaroo reminded us that we weren't there yet, but we were on our way. That trip to Queensland reminds me a little bit of the Christian life. It seems long, it seems difficult at times, but the destination is worth it. We're not there yet, but we're all on our way in Christ. In our present lives, we live in the dualism of our present current experience and our future reality. And we're holding those two things in tension all of the time. We live in the now, but the not yet kingdom of God. And as we do lives, we do our lives in a constant paradox. Romans chapter 6 through to chapter 8, as we go through this series, highlights three different ways that we live in that tension. Last week we looked at the second half of Romans chapter 6. And if you weren't here last week, do yourself a favour and listen to the podcast. Uh, my grandfather preached last week. He is uh, just a few months short of his 94th birthday. And let me tell you, if I have the passion and the fire for the gospel that he's got when I'm 94, I'll be a very grateful man. And as I watched my granddad preach up on this platform last week, I thought to myself of those words that Paul said towards the end of his earthly life. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there's a crown of righteousness installed for me. As I looked at my granddad preach, I thought that is his declaration over his life. And my prayer is that each of us, when we breathe our last breath, can have that same declaration over our lives. And so last week we looked at Romans chapter 6 and we saw this dualistic paradox of our lives, that we are free from sin. Isn't that amazing that we're free from sin in Christ and yet we battle with it every day? Romans chapter 7 today says we're free from the law and yet we're not righteous according to its criteria. 
Romans chapter 8 next week. It says we're free from death and yet we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. Our Christian experience, this side of eternity, is one of now but not yet. We're on our way. In other words, we're being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives every day as we accept Christ. We receive the Spirit of God into our hearts and He is transforming us bit by bit, day by day, step by step from the inside out. The Holy Spirit is conforming us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so we're on our way. But I think we'd all acknowledge that we're not there yet. I think we all experience this in life. By the grace of God, we're not who we used to be. But we're not yet who we're going to be either. Our journey of discipleship is one of lifelong learning and continual growth. Chapter 6 of Romans outlined how we're free from the power of sin. And now in chapter 7, Paul turns his attention to our freedom from the law. So there's three things I want to say about the law today. And the first one is this, that the law is actually good. Taylor, one of our daughters, posted the verse of the day on Instagram today. And it says, As for God, His way is perfect. The way of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. And so the law is actually good. It is good because it's designed to help us flourish. In our society, we know this to be true. In our country, the law, which was pretty much built upon God's law when it was written, says that we can't murder each other. Who thinks that's a good news today? Okay, have a look around. Anyone who does not have their hand up, look out for those people. They are very dodgy and they could take you out at any moment. And so, hands up if you think murder, we can't murder, is is a good idea. There's still a few dodgy ones around. That's okay. You know who they are now. But the law says we can't murder one another, and I think that's a really good thing, particularly around football finals. (laughs) The law also says that we can't steal from each other. And so I'm not permitted today to go and browse through the car park and help myself to the best-looking car there, although that would be a good idea. See, the law tells us things that we can and can't do, and I think it's a really good thing. These are laws that are put in place for the good of our society so that we can live safe and free lives and we all benefit from, those, benefit from those in many different ways. And so what is the law in the Bible? Well, God's commandments given by God through the first five books of the Bible um, depict what the law is, but I think most clearly shown to us in the Ten Commandments given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. And so in the same way uh, that law is good for us, God gave them the law for the flourishing of his people, for humanity. We often read laws and commandments today and we immediately think they are restricting that they hold us back, that they limit what we can do. But the law is actually good for each of us in many ways and it actually helps us to live lives of freedom. You see, when God's people were given the Ten Commandments, those laws would never have been seen as restrictive but rather as liberating. We need to understand the background of when they received those laws. They had been in Egypt, oppressed by the Egyptians. They had suffered all sorts of injustice. They had experienced family members being killed. Their possessions had been stolen. Their wives had been abused. Lies had been told. All sorts of injustice was going on. And so when God gave these commands, things like you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall not give false testimony, I imagine it would have been a celebration for those people. An absolute joy. Wow, these laws, they don't restrict us. They actually set us free. They give us rights. And they provide us protection and safety. God's people would have been thrilled because they could now 
flourish. And so today I want to encourage you to see the benefits of God's commands for us today in our own lives. Let me give you a couple of practical examples. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and you. It's a bit old. If you're a bit young, you don't understand what I'm saying. You're old salt and pepper. Jackie knows. I remember her singing it back in church days. But uh, let's talk about sex for a moment. Sex is a wonderful gift. God loves sex. He loves it so much he designed it for us to enjoy. It's a gift given to us. It's a wonderful gift where we can grow in intimacy with one another. It's the most intimate act we can have physically with another person. A wonderful gift. And yet God gives us this gift and there's only one restriction on it. That he wants us to use it within the covenant relationship of a marriage. Using that gift with, with someone who's committed their lives to us, that has laid their lives down for us, and has declared their love for us as long as we live. And so it's a wonderful gift. And I think God gives it to us within that context because he knows the damage that sex can have if it's misused. Outside of a marriage relationship, it can be abused inside of marriage as well, don't get me wrong, but it shouldn't be if you're in a covenant relationship of love. But outside of a marriage, we see things like rape and all sorts of sexual assaults. We see things like unwanted pregnancies, STDs. All sorts of stuff can happen when sex is misused. And so God has given us this wonderful gift to be used within the context of marriage. Not to restrict us, but to give us a life of freedom where we can enjoy it. The second thing is money. You know, the Bible talks about tithing. To bring the first 10% of the 100% God's given us to commit the first 10% back to the Lord. I think the Old Testament talks about that. I believe Jesus reaffirms that in the New Testament. And I believe that's what God asks us to do. And many people look at something like that and go, that's outrageous. I could never do that. I will never do that. It's unreasonable. But God in his wisdom knows that money above all other things can quickly take God's place. He knows the traps of materialism that fills us with an unquenchable thirst for more. Jesus says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And at the same time, God knows that generosity is the key that breaks us free from the prison of materialism. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so the gift of tithing actually protects us from replacing God with money by putting him as first priority even in the area of our finance. These commandments aren't designed to restrict us, but rather to keep us living lives of freedom. Obeying God's law is an act of faith by which we acknowledge that perhaps our creator knows better than those he created when it comes to human flourishing. His ways are higher than our ways. And so first of all, the law is good because it's designed to help us flourish. The second reason it's good is that it clearly defines what God expects. In the law, we see God's requirements on what it takes to be in a relationship with him, and it's pretty clear, and it's pretty plain, and it's been written down for us. I think most of us are here today because we are pursuing a relationship with God. We want to be in relationship with him because we love him, and so God has put down these requirements very clearly for us, and so we know the expectations in a relationship. I think a lot of us, a lot of the time, live by a whole lot of unwritten rules, unwritten laws, don't we? We see this, I think, in relationships. When you're talking with your friends, there's things that aren't written down that you can say or not say, but if you say them or not say them, it can determine how your friendship goes. It's the same in a marriage relationship, isn't it? When your wife asks you what she looks like in that new pair of jeans, there is no written law on how you should respond. 
But if you say anything other than, you look lovely, dear, you'll reap the consequences of that decision. Of course, we'd never say anything other than that because we love and cherish our wives and they are always beautiful and so we'd never say anything else. You look lovely, dear. She's left the room so she didn't even hear it. She's trying to get some brownie points. When your wife tells you about a problem or an issue she's going through, it's not written down, but you know she's not looking for advice or any practical solutions. She just wants you to listen. And when your wife says something that seems really clear, it's not always as you assume, is it? When I say to my wife, can I go to the footy? And she says, yes, fine. I've come to learn that yes, fine doesn't mean yes, fine. It means yes, fine. And those two things are very, very different. I know I'm generalising here. Husbands are a lot more simple. When you ask them, are you hungry? And they say, yes, I am hungry. That is man code for yes, I am hungry. (laughs) Unspoken laws in relationships exist and they aren't always clear. And because men are a little bit slow to learn, they can sometimes lead to conflict and tension. God's law is not unspoken. He's spoken clearly through his word. It's not unclear. In fact, it's been written down for all of us to know and understand. If you want to be in a relationship with a holy God, these are the things that the law requires. It tells us the difference between right and wrong. It tells us what pleases God and what displeases him. It tells us what our creator expects from us in a relationship with him and he makes it clear and simple for us to understand. And so in this way, the law is good. This passage tells us that in verse 7. Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. In verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. In verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. So first of all today, the law is good. And so hold that over there for a moment. The second thing I want to say is this, that the law is also a curse. It's a curse to those who try to obey it. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Who on earth continues to do everything written in the book of the law? Nobody. As hard as we may try, none of us keep the law perfectly. And therefore, if perfect keeping of the law is required to keep us in relationship with a perfect holy God, it's a curse because all of us fall short of that standard. It doesn't mean the law is not good. The law is good. The law is not the problem. We are the problem because we can't keep it. Verse 14 told us that the law is spiritual. But Paul goes on to say that I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. We discussed a couple of weeks ago that we have inherent sin. We are born with a sinful nature, which is why we need to be born again. And so when the law, which is spiritual, which was given for our good, rubs up against us who are unspiritual, what happens is it highlights everything unspiritual in us. We realise that we fall short of this standard over and over again and it becomes a curse. Verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity 
opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. From Adam and Eve in the garden all the way to us, we've always wanted the things that we're not meant to have. The things that displease God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were given absolutely everything. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Absolute paradise. They could enjoy communion with God. They could enjoy a relationship with one another that was unblemished. They could eat anything they wanted in the garden. They were free to explore, to do whatever they want. They lived in paradise. And yet there was one thing that God said not to do. Don't eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden with the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were they obsessed with? The one thing God said not to touch, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can watch this today in any room full of kids and toys. You can give them the best toys in the world. They could be an open day at Toys R Us. Everything that beeps and moves and is exciting. And you can have one crappy toy over in the corner and you say, don't touch that one toy. And what's the one toy they're going to want? They're going to want the one toy they don't want. Now I know what you're thinking. That's what kids do. We grow out of that. Let me use two words that will convict every adult in this room. Are you ready? Speed limits. (laughs) Speed limits. We know they're good, right? And yet our eyes deceive us. Instead of seeing 100, we see 110. Instead of seeing 90, we see 80. Instead of seeing 70, we see 60. And instead of seeing 40, we think that's just crazy. I could walk faster than that. Right? And so we, we break that law every day. But the thing is this, that if we run over a kid too fast in a school zone, we may finally realise that a speed limit is actually a good thing. It's wise for everyone. But most of us probably break that law every day we drive. Now, clearly I don't because I'm a pastor. <laughs> but I'm looking at it, a whole bunch of sinners that would struggle with this every single day. If you're visiting today, that was a joke. <laughs> Just in case you go, he's this self-righteous guy at Follow Baptist Church. Don't go there. See, we just keep doing what we're not meant to do. We see it in our own lives. We see it in kids. We saw it in Adam and Eve. I even see it in my dog. We have an outdoor setting at home, a beautiful outdoor setting with couches, with cushions. And since we got our bull terrier, which we don't regret, um, (laughs) he's pretty much destroyed the couches. He's laid all over the pillows. His hair is everywhere. He's even chewed some of the lovely cushions. And so recently we bought a replacement outdoor setting, a much cheaper one this time. And what we do is we put all the new cushions in the shed. And when visitors come over or when we have a function, we bring out all the, the cushions out and we use the new cushions so that people are comfortable and they don't get hair all over them. It's a pretty good system, right? But what we did is we left the new wicker part of the, of the couches out, pushed to the side near the barbecue. So he's still got his existing couches that he's destroyed, the, the comfortable couches with the cushions. And then there's the wicker couches over here, pushed out of the way with no cushions. Guess where he lays, first opportunity. I don't need the cushions, I want this new thing and I might have a little nibble on it. I thought it was a good system. We were all on board with the system except for the dog. And so I grabbed him by the collar and I looked him in the eyes and I said, there are no cushions on that one. You have still got your cushions. And I took him over there and he just looked at me and went... (laughs) And I was reminded that my dog has a big heart but a very small brain. Very small brain. We gravitate away from God's good and perfect law that's given to us for our own benefit and we always want what we're not supposed to have. I don't know about the dog, I think he's just an idiot, but for Paul (laughs) and for us, he makes it clear that that's our inherent sinful nature. Verse 17 says, As it is, 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell within me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's a mouthful, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me who does it. That does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Have you ever had that thought? None of you women have because you're not men. But you've probably had that thought, what a wretched woman I am. You know, we often have that thought, man, I keep falling short. And I think we can all relate to Paul's sentiments in this passage, particularly when it comes to reoccurring sin in our lives, those things, those weaknesses we have that just keep uh, you know, rearing their heads over and over again. And we repent and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I won't do that again. And by the time we've finished our prayer, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing again. Well, maybe it's just me. Some people, you know, there's different things for different people. We all have weaknesses in different areas. Maybe it's, for you, it's gossip or dishonesty and lying. Maybe it's what you look at on the internet. Maybe it's the way you speak to others. Or perhaps even struggling or refusing to forgive. The law is good, but it's a curse because we can't keep it. The law is holy and good and spiritual and right, but it's also a curse because it highlights the gap between us and God's. Now, there's some controversy about this particular passage. I think it's already come up in one of our small groups. And the controversy is this, that some commentators believe that Paul is not talking about his Christian life in this passage, but rather he's talking about, he's referring back to his life before he was a Christian. In other words, this, there's this kind of thought that if you're truly a Christian and the Holy Spirit's working in your life, then you shouldn't have these struggles and thoughts. Well, I don't think that's consistent with our experience. And from the passage, I also think it makes no sense. And I see that in verse 22. This is the key verse. Paul says, these are his words, For in my inner delight, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Who here knows a non-Christian who says, In my inner being, I delight in God's law? Said nobody ever. Nobody says that. Because if you're not a Christian... If you don't accept who God is, if you haven't received him as your Lord and Saviour, then you'll happily rebel against him. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't even believe in you. I'm not delighting in your law. I'm doing my own thing. I'm my own God. God, I don't need you. You see, only somebody who had had God working in their life, only a person the Holy Spirit had revealed Jesus to could possibly ever say these words. And these are Paul's words in this passage. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He's not talking about his pre-Christian life and now his post-Christian conversion. This is the day-to-day reality of the Christian life as we wrestle with the now and the not yet, as we wrestle between this new life in the spirit and this old life in our flesh. And so let's say it again this morning. We're not there yet. Completely uninspired. We're not there yet. But we're on our way. Absolutely we are. And that's a great thing about being a Christian. But I want to warn you that the devil can get a foothold in this wrestle. He's the great accuser. 
He wants to fill us with guilt and shame and regret and a sense of condemnation. And he wants us to stay there paralyzed to the plans that God has for our lives. Perhaps this morning you're one of those people who lives there, always feeling guilty, always feeling ashamed, always sensing you're not good enough, often feeling like giving up, comparing yourself to others around you, thinking, well, they on the outside look so much more holy than me, but we all know that appearances can fall, can't they? That we all have our own struggles going on in life. Comparison is a futile pursuit. Maybe you think, how can I be a Christian when I just keep falling short, when I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Well, Paul can relate to you. Let me tell you, if you feel this tension on a regular basis, it's a very good thing because it's showing you that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. If you never feel that tension at all, it's probably not a good sign. Maybe your conscience has been seared. Maybe you're not really pursuing God. But if you're feeling this tension, then welcome to the Christian life. It's a tension of I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. God is working in my heart, in my life, through the Holy Spirit. And so I want to encourage you in the wrestle not to give the devil a foothold. Don't gravitate to guilt, but embrace grace. Don't gravitate to guilt. Embrace grace. It's the power of of the gospel and take comfort knowing that the law was never designed to save us it was given to show us that we need a savior and in Jesus we meet that savior whose grace is sufficient for us our relationship with God is not earned by keeping the law it was purchased by Christ's blood through his amazing grace and that's the third and final point this morning that we are set free from the curse of the law in Christ don't ever let anyone fool you into thinking that the Christian life is all about rules and regulations where we're striving to be perfect. Christian life is so much more liberating and enjoyable than that. We don't need to fulfill the law because Jesus did it perfectly. We don't need to be perfect because Jesus was. We don't need to carry the consequence of our sin because Jesus died in our place. We don't have to experience eternal separation from God because Jesus experienced it on our behalf when he carried our sin. This is the good news of the gospel. It's great news, isn't it? That we have been set free. The law has no power over us anymore. It is not our master. Jesus is. What a delight it is to follow him. You see, apart from Christ, we're bound to the law. But in Christ, we're released from the curse of it. This is what he says in the first few verses of this chapter. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relationships with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So here's the picture. There's two people that have come together. They've committed themselves to covenant relationship in marriage. Now, if one of them goes and has an affair with somebody else, they have committed adultery. That's pretty clear. While they're living, they are bound to one another in this covenant of love. However, if one of those people dies... They are no longer bound. The person left is no longer bound to that commitment because one person has died to the commitment. And so the original bond is broken because one of those people has died. And so Paul's using this example from everyday life to describe our connection with the law. Apart from Christ, we are bound to the law. Our only hope of a relationship with God is to keep that law perfectly. And if you know yourself, you know that's no hope at all. 
But in Christ, we've been crucified with him. We have died to our old self. The price was paid by Jesus and we've died to the power of sin and we are free from the curse of the law because Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He was without sin. And so at the cross, Jesus took our sin. Sin is the obstacle between us and a holy God. Jesus removed that and it was nailed to the cross with Christ. And at the same time, he has this great exchange where in return, he hands us his righteousness. That's a wonderful exchange to have. And so by faith, we can now access the grace of God and right standing with God the Father, not by keeping the law, but by putting our faith in Jesus. Man, that's good news. God's standard's here. Our lives are here. But we find grace in the gap. I love that. Verse 6, But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. See, the written code led to legalism. It led to endless striving to try and earn relationship with God. It led to doing things from a sense of duty or obligation. That is not the Christian life. If you feel like it's a duty, it's an obligation, that you're striving to always try and be perfect, let me tell you, you haven't been set free yet. The Christian life is to pursue Jesus in this relationship of love where there is a desire to live for him and when we fall short, we find grace in the gap. It's a wonderful life, enjoyable, the most fulfilling life you can ever live. Not an easy life, but an incredibly fulfilling one. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. The law is still good to keep, but the motivation has changed. We don't obey it because we have to. We obey it because we want to. We get this revelation that Jesus has been so good to us. He took our penalty. What a saviour, what a heavenly father to send his son. What a friend we have in Jesus. And so we love him and we love to please him because he's written his law upon our hearts. Let me finish today by reading a commentary by the name of a guy, a guy by the name of Shed. <laughs> he compares life by the law and life in the spirit. This is what he says about the written code. The oldness of the letter is a service of bondage, a mechanical and false obedience enforced by a fearful spirit of servitude, which seeks to perform by an effort of the will the letter of the law. Here the law is written in the heart and is therefore external to the will for the letter kills. But this is what he says about life in the spirit. Completely different. He says the newness of the spirit is a service of liberty. A spontaneous and real obedience, inspired by joyful spirit of adoption, which actually fulfills by an inward inclination the intent of the law. Here the law is written upon the heart and is therefore internal to the will, for the spirit gives life. Christian life is a life of forgiveness and obedience, but not because we have to, but because we get to. Our creator has created for us a way of life to live, and in it we find freedom and life and life to the full. We're not there yet. We're all on the journey. But every day we can rejoice that each of us are on the way. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church. And one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, 
www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.